We are, uh, this year, if you've been with us this year, um, you know that we've been going through a series just driving through the biblical narrative. So it's been a very unusual year in the sense that we're just kind of starting at the beginning, the Hebrew scriptures and going through the biblical narrative. Uh, uh, Right now we've made it through uh, into the monarchy period of Israel. And as we've gotten to this point, we saw a few weeks ago that King Saul was the first king of Israel, and he started off pretty good, it seemed like. But then what happened after that was he ended up um, kind of going off the rails really bad that King Saul did. Either power corrupted him, which does happen, or power revealed what was going on inside of him. Either way, Saul was in a bad place before it was over. And so at some point in that story, we saw a couple weeks ago that there's a young boy named David who was a shepherd watching his father's flock for his dad and his older brothers, brave, willing to risk his life to defend the sheep. But also, um, you know, just he was a poet. He was a songwriter. He wrote songs of praise to God. And um, he played the harp very well. And one day, the prophet Samuel arrives in a private ceremony for fear of their lives. And he anoints David in front of his family to be the future king of Israel, which surprised the whole family, surprised David, I'm sure. And uh, all of a sudden, things began to shift. Uh, king Saul's going through a terrible time, just depression and fear and a lot of, of concerns, just his, his overall well-being, emotional health. And so they bring David in. because Someone heard that David played the harp. Well, he come, he's brought to the royal city, and he plays the harp for King Saul. And Saul loves him, has no idea he's supposed to be the next king, according to the anointing from the prophet Samuel. And that, makes, that would have made him, public, you know, that would have put, made him an enemy of the king. But the king um, loves having David play music. And then eventually, the Philistines, it's the time for war to start. I told you this before, but military campaigns happen in seasons. Um, people got ready for battle when the weather allowed and nations just get their armies together and either go out and conquer someone in that, in that time period of the world during the, the good weather months or they would get their armies together to defend themselves from being attacked during the good weather months. And so Israel defended themselves as the Philistines marched and the Goliath, the giant, came out and David stepped forward when no one else would and David killed the giant and became a national hero. Israel begins to pursue the Philistines, which we often think when we read the story, it all happened in one day, but really that would begin to be be a campaign that they would be beginning, gone for quite some time in pursuit of the ones who came to attack them. And David returns victorious. And we left off the story two weeks ago when we we took a break last week to talk about other things. But we left off the story two weeks ago with David standing before Saul, no longer as just the harp player, but the guy who's holding the head of Goliath in his hands, like, here I am. Who are you, David? I underestimated you. And we left off the story there. We're going to continue from that point, and we have a lot of story to tell today. So buckle up. I want to crank through a lot of narrative Let's get cranking. Okay, so uh, 1 Samuel 18, verse 1, it says, After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. Now, Jonathan's a very interesting character here. You met him a few weeks ago, too, when Anthony spoke. Jonathan was, was a great guy. I mean, he, he was in line to be the next king because that's how most empires go. When the king passes away, his heir becomes the next king. So Jonathan would be in place to become the next king one day. And he seems qualified. If you read the stories that we told recently, I mean, he's, he's a great guy. His dad's off, the, off his rocker, but, but Jonathan's solid. And so 
he should be the next king, but, but he meets David this day. And it says that there was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. And, and this is a, as we read a few verses, and there's verses elsewhere we won't even have a time to look at today, but there's something special with Jonathan and David. A lot of folks have speculated what that might mean and, and what this relationship was like. But the bottom line was Jonathan was drawn to David and David to Jonathan. And he lo- uh, so Saul is impressed. Jonathan just is taken to David. And it says, from that day on, Saul kept David with him, and he wouldn't let him return home. He's like, you're not going home anymore. You're going to stay here and play that harp, which you do great, or you're going to go help us in battle. And they actually were going to battle now for that campaign to chase the Philistines who brought their giant to face them. They're going to chase them back for a while. It says in verse 3 that Jonathan, back to Jonathan here, that Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as, as he loved himself. And, and so there's this, this relationship that's strong. And it says, in, for, furthermore, Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David, together with his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, there's a lot of meaning you can draw from that. I think one of the things that we need to draw symbolically from this is that Jonathan is recognizing that David is probably the one to be the next king. Saul got his start by a military victory. And now David's already a, a national hero, and everyone loves him. And Jonathan, who should be possessive of the future throne, loves David so much, and he believes in David so much that he recognizes maybe God's doing something with you. And he gives him all of these items that belong to him as, I think, a symbolic gesture that I'm in a covenant with you, and let's be friends, and let's stick together no matter what happens, and let's not let politics or family pull us apart. Well... It says this, whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and by Saul's officers alike. And there are other verses we don't have time to read about this, but the, the, the skinny on it is that as they're going into this campaign to pursue the Philistines, and they're going to be gone for a little while following the battle with Goliath, um, David just is brought with him, and Saul begins to give him more responsibility, and he flourishes. Saul gives him more responsibility, and eventually puts him in charge of a bunch of men. David's young, so there's a lot of older people here. And you know how it is when you get a new boss or somebody at your work, and they're, old, they're younger than you, and you're like, oh, man. You know, but no one complained about David in his youth because he was so respected that everyone's like, yeah, that's great. We're good with that. The whole nation loved him. And everything seems to be going well so far, but this is where things are going to start to pivot. It says, when the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine and the ensuing campaign, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. So the the, the campaign is over. Everyone's returning back. And, and the women and people who were not able to go to battle would often come out and celebrate in the streets, kind of like Victory Day, you know. They come packing out the streets, and the women would come out, and they're dancing. They have their, their percussion instruments, their tambourines and their cymbals, and they're dancing around, having a good time. And um, then maybe they're celebrating the returning men. Maybe they're re- celebrating their man returning safely, or maybe looking for one, I don't know. But either way, they're excited. Everyone's celebratory. They win. And they begin to sing songs. And it was customary to sing songs of victory, especially honoring the leaders. And sure enough, they began to sing in verse 7. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands 
and David has ten thousands. Now I want to give you all a little statement here that you already probably know, but let me just state the obvious. Saul had not literally killed thousands. We know that, right? It's, they're singing, they're exaggerating. They're like lifting him up in song. It's, it's hyperbole. They're like, so, I mean, Saul, it was, it was, this was not a first-person shooter game on, on PS4 or something, you know? He's like, look, um, Saul was just the commander of a large army going out to fight the battle. That's what he was doing. But they're saying the team won and we're victorious and Saul has killed his thousands. In other words, he's the best. And then said David has killed his ten thousands. David had not literally killed ten thousands himself. But again, the idea is they're exalting these heroes and these men, which is not unnormal, especially for the king. But the problem was this didn't settle right. In verse 8 it says that this made Saul very angry. What's this, he said? They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands? Next, they'll be making him their king. It's funny. Here's Saul like, what? They're only giving me credit for thousands that I didn't kill, that I don't deserve? You know? They're only giving me credit for way more than I did, but they're giving someone else even more credit that they didn't deserve? The audacity, you know? It's just like, it's funny because this is how we can, we can all relate to this if we're being real. Could be in, in anything in life. We can look at people who get a better break than we do, and all of a sudden we got a bad deal. And this can apply to so many ways. I mean, an easy way is to think about us as people who live in one of the most wealthy and prosperous nations in the world, and instead of feeling like we're blessed and rich by global standards, we look at someone who around us who has more and say, you know, it's not fair, and I'm, I'm jealous or I'm upset at them or at God because of, of I don't have as much as someone else has, rather than looking at all the people that we or, you know, we're, we're blessed. Or it could be at your job with someone else, you know. Instead of just being thankful for all I have and all the blessings I don't deserve and all the grace I've enjoyed, we look at somebody else and says, why do they get that? And Saul's angry. Instead of saying, hey, they, they are singing praises to me and giving me a lot of credit, he says, it bothers me they're giving this guy more credit. And he doesn't deserve it. I mean, neither do I, but still he's getting him more. So they're very upset. He's very upset. And it says, from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The green-eyed monster is coming out in full force. It says a very interesting thing in verse 10. It says, from that, the very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul, and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day, but Saul had a spear in his hand. So here's what's going on, and I want you to understand this, because this is why David was brought in in the first place, was to play the harp and calm Saul down when he would lose his mind. And now Saul is as crazy as ever, and he's running around raving like a madman. David's playing the harp trying to calm him down, and Saul's got a spear in his hand. I imagine David's kind of watching Saul with one eye and playing the harp with the other eye, because whenever someone's running around raving and foaming at the mouth with a sharp object in their hand, you, you want to keep your eye on that person, you know? So he's watching Saul, and at some point it says, and Saul suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall, but Saul escaped, David escaped him twice. So Saul literally throws his spear at his mighty, his heart player and his, his victor, you know. He throws a spear and tries to kill him. And somehow either David parries and gets out of the way or Saul just misses. But he could have gotten killed. And David escapes from the murder. And where do you go? Someone tries to kill you. If it's the king trying to kill you, do you go to the king police? 
I mean, where does he go? He's in trouble. He just gets out of there. And what happens next, without reading so many verses today, without, we're going to read a lot more still, so just telling you this part of the story, when David got out of there, Saul became a little bit concerned. He tried to kill David in private, but he thought to himself, I can't go publicly take him on right now because everyone loves him because of his victories and his, he's, just a, he's a national hero. So Saul kind of backs down and David just tries to stay away a little bit. And things are a little tense for a while. Saul finally sends David out and says, listen, go out, take some men with you and go out and do some of your exploits with military just to get him out of town so he don't have to see him and also kind of hoping that David will die in battle and do him a favor. But David keeps coming back victorious and everyone loves him. He's a hero. So then he finds out that his daughter, Saul's daughter, Michael, uh, he has a daughter named Michael, and Michael is in love with David. She is like a big fan of David. She has like a poster of David on her bedroom wall. She's, he, like, he's the reason for the teardrops on her guitar. I mean, she is just absolutely head over heels about David. And, and so Dad hears about it, and Dad thinks, aha, I have a chance here to, to do something. And there's, a, there's a lot more to the story that I'm just skipping. You should read these stories because there's so many details and things that we can't get into that are interesting. But bottom line, Saul thinks, maybe I can use my daughter's love for David to get him killed. So he sends word to his other people, to David, saying, hey, king's daughter wants to marry you and the king is all for it. And David's answer is, I can't marry her because I can't pay the dowry. Um, I'm supposed to pay a dowry apparently to the um, father of you know, the bride. You know, I should have thought of this one. I, I have girls, you know, what was I thinking? But anyhow, um, you know, and so I'm to pay him a dowry. And David's like, look, he's the king. He's the king's dowry and I'm a poor guy. I can't pay that. So he says that. And so then the king is thinking, he's like, tell David, I don't want money. I have plenty of money. Tell David that I want Victory over my enemy, the Philistines. Tell him if he goes and kills a hundred Philistines and brings back a, a token of his killing them. I'm not going to tell you what the token is because it's pretty crude, but basically what he was saying is bring back a token of proof that basically would say, look, I outmanned these guys, so to speak. Okay, just let you, you look it up yourself. If he goes back and kills 100 Philistines and brings 100 tokens back that he killed these guys, then I'll give him my daughter's hand in marriage. And that's all I want, no money. And his thinking was, David will get killed doing this, and then I'll get rid of this jerk. I'm trying to take over my kingdom in my mind. So David hears that, and he's like, I can do that. So he gets his men together. They go out and they kill 200 Philistines and bring 200 tokens back. Disgusting. And um, here we go. He's like, oh, okay. So then here's my daughter's hand in marriage. And now you're my son-in-law. What, what happened there? So it really goes sideways. And it says in, in 1 Samuel 18, 28, that when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and how much his daughter Michael loved him, Saul became even more afraid of him. And he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. And every time the commanders of the Philistines attacked David was more successful against them than the rest of Saul's officers. So David's name became very famous. Now, it's just not going Saul's way. He's, he was happy to have someone like David. Now he's jealous of David. Now he's trying to get rid of him. And I'm going to skip some more story, but David's kind of staying away from the palace. But Jonathan, remember Jonathan and David, Saul's, Saul's daughter's married to David. Saul's son loves David. So Jonathan is off to visit David one day, and he's like, David, you've not been around lately. And David's like, that's because your dad wants to kill me. And so Jonathan's like, no, no, you're misunderstanding him. I know my dad's a little off his rocker and he's a little nuts, but he's not trying to kill you. That's just, he's just how he is. 
And so David's like, you need to talk to your dad because I think you're mistaken. So Jonathan goes back to his dad and says, dad, what's up? Like David's your, he's your heart player. He's the warrior that killed Goliath. He's a trusted commander in your military. He's loyal. Why are, what are you trying to do? And Saul actually listens to his son and says, yeah, you're right, I'm sorry. And David comes back in the fold for a little while until another crazy day on Saul's erratic journey where he tries to kill David again. And David gets out of there. And then Saul has the bright idea. I'm going to send men to attack his house at night while he's sleeping in bed because he's a pretty tough warrior. We'll kill him in bed. That'll be the I'll send some forces to his house at night. We'll just bust in and kill him. The crazy thing about that is guess who else lives in David's house? Saul's daughter, his wife. Saul's going to send these men to my daughter's house to kill her husband in their bed. Just, he's so crazy. So somehow someone leaks word to them, that, that, to Michael, his wife, that this was going to happen. And she warns David. David climbs out the window and escapes while she kind of makes it look like he's laying in the bed. And she stalls the guys who are coming into the house. She stalls the best she can to get up to the room. And they're killing nothing because no one's in the bed. And then they finally realize it's not David and he's gone. And he's on the run. And a little while later, it's time for a new moon festival. And this is a time where they would all gather at the royal house and Saul and all the family and all the military leaders would gather for this festival. And so David's supposed to be there. And so Jonathan is visiting David and they're out in the field. And he's like, David, are you going to be at the festival? No way. Your dad's trying to kill me and it's getting more public now. It was just in private once before, but now it's kind of becoming public and obvious. I think he'll try to kill me there. And Jonathan's like, no, he won't. But so, so he doesn't see it. David says, I'm going to stay hidden. You find out how the festival goes without me and let's see who's right. So they make an arrangement that I'm skipping a lot of details. It doesn't matter. David stays away and Jonathan goes to the feast. Let's pick up the story in verse number 24 of chapter 20. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon festival began, the king sat down to eat. He sat at his usual place against the wall, with Jonathan sitting opposite him and Abner beside him, but David's place was empty. This is, by the way, if you've ever been into a situation, this is how it works maybe at a, at a big feast like this, or even in a corporate America at an executive board meeting. There's like a whole science to how people sit. Like the big head honcho tends to sit in the chair at the end of the table with his back to the wall so he can watch the entrances. And then the other important seats might be the opposite side of the table or the person right next to him on his right. And so everyone's got their little spot. It's the whole thing. And David's not there, but the family's there and the other leaders are there. And Saul has prepared to kill him. He's come ready. He's going to, at this point, he's willing to publicly come out that he wants David dead and just get it done with. But he's waiting. Verse 26 says, Saul didn't say anything about it that day, for he thought to himself, something must have made David ceremonially unclean. But when David's place was empty again the next day, Saul asked Jonathan, hey, why hasn't the son of Jesse been here for the meal, either yesterday or today? And now Jonathan's going to tell a story and see where his dad's mind is really at. So Jonathan replied, oh yeah, David earnestly asked me if he could go to Bethlehem. He said, please let me go for we're having a family sacrifice. My brothers demanded that I be there. So please let me get away to see my brothers in Bethlehem where I'm from, you know. That's why he isn't here at the king's table. And this is the moment where Jonathan gets to find out where his dad's head is really at. Interestingly, in verse 30, it says, Saul boiled with rage at Jonathan. You stupid son of a whore, he swore at him. 
Do you think I don't know that you want him to be a king in your place, shaming yourself and your mother? <laughs> like, in other words, I know that you know that he could be the next king, and you're okay with that. And you're shaming yourself, and you're shaming your mom, to which Jonathan's probably thinking, I'm shaming my mom? You just called her a whore. Cuckoo, cuckoo. I mean, you're the crazy one here, okay? But, um, you know, he's just furious. And then Saul says, as long as that son of Jesse is alive, you'll never be king. Now, you go get him so I can kill him. So here's the thing. The cat's out of the bag. Now, everyone at that table now knows that Saul wants David dead. It's like all the leaders, everyone knows it now. And here's the crazy part. Jonathan is being told Man up, kid. Go bring your enemy back here so I can kill him. We're going to secure your spot on the throne. Do it now. But Jonathan wants no part of that. So he pushes back. He says, but why? Why should he be put to death? Jonathan asked. What has he done? And then it gets crazy. Then Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan, his son, intending to kill him. So at last, Jonathan realized that his father was really determined to kill David. Can you imagine that moment when he's at that spear he's had and he throws it across the table and misses and almost kills his son in front of all those people? And Jonathan's like, Dad, you're, you're, you're crazy. And a terrible aim, apparently. I mean, he's missing people, apparently. But no, he's like, what in the world? And so this is a terrible moment here. And so Jonathan, it says, left the table in fierce anger and refused to eat on that second day of the festival, for he was crushed by his father's shameful behavior towards David. Towards David? How about towards his son? But Jonathan's like, I'm worried about David. So Jonathan goes out to where David's hiding, and again, simplifying the story, he tells David, you're right. And now it's worse. Everyone knows. David, you got to run, because you're now a fugitive. And they cry, and they hug, and embrace, and they just have a, you know, the parting promise of their, of their commitment to each other. And, and then David leaves. David just takes off. And David is now public enemy number one. And I want to just take a moment before we get into the rest of the story here today. And I want us to think about that. Because David's narrative has really shifted a lot, hasn't it? Because, I mean, for a while there, he's just a shepherd watching the sheep, writing songs to God. Everything's fine. And then all of the sudden... The prophet comes along, he's anointed king, he's playing the harp in the palace, kind of seeing the inside of the, of the place where he'll eventually serve and live as king. He's, he's, he's a hero, he's killing the giant, everyone loves him, his star is rising, everything is up and to the right for David. And then, the, and by the way, have you ever been there before in life? When you just were so sure everything was right with the world and, and God was with you and things were good and everything was just working out according to plan and you're so sure of yourself. But then everything fell apart and everything crashed down. And David went from being a, afraid to becoming public enemy number one, a fugitive, worse off than ever before when he was a shepherd for his dad living a peaceful life. And David has to be wondering what maybe you have wondered at some point. What happened? Wasn't God in this? If God is in this, why has this happened? If God is in this, why has he let people treat me this way? If God is in this, why is he the people who should be, treat me right, treat me this way? Authority treat me this way. Why am I being hunted if I'm, did, God, did I mess up? Did I mess it up? Or did God just change his mind? Or have I been crazy this whole time to imagine that he's even involved at all? What's going on? You ever been there before? That's where David's at now. And he's afraid, and he's running. 
A couple more stories, and we got to move along here. 1 Samuel 21, 1 says that David went to the town of Nob. That's the short name for the town. The full name of the town was Doorknob. But no, it doesn't. I'm sorry. I don't know why I said that. Um, David went to the town of Nob to see Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech trembled when he saw him. So the priest, this is a town of priests, by the way. They all stayed there. And Ahimelech sees David, and he's trembling. He's like, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? You never are alone. You're like a commander. What's going on here? And David is going to make a decision right now to lie. Because he's, I'm not saying it's right to lie. I'm not defending a lie. But the bottom line is David's afraid. And when we are afraid, it's easy to justify doing something wrong because we're not sure what else to do. So David says um, to, to Ahimelech, Oh, the king has sent me on a private matter. He told me not to tell anyone why I am here. I told my men where to meet me later. Not true. Now what is there to eat, he asked. Give me five loaves of bread or something else you have. In other words, David, since he climbed out of his bedroom window and ran, has probably had a hard time getting anything solid. He's been in that field hiding during the New Moon Festival. He's like, I need some food right now. I need some food for later. Can you give me some food? And the priest is like, I mean, we've got like the ceremonial bread, but you've got to be like ceremonially clean and, you know, to take it the priests are, but it's not for you unless, I mean, I guess if you're desperate and you've at least not been sleeping around for the last few days, are you kidding me? I've been, no. <laughs> yes, I'll take, give me the bread. So, he, okay, I'll get the bread for you. And as he's getting the bread, David looks out and in the town he sees a man walking around who's also visiting there at the same time David is there. That man's name is Doeg. And David knows Doeg. He's trouble. He's loyal to King Saul. And David's like, oh boy. But what am I going to do? So he takes the bread, thank you very much. And then David asks another question. David asked Abimelech, Ahimelech, do you have a spear or a sword? He's going to lie again. The king's business was so urgent that I didn't even have time to grab a weapon. Um, Ahimelech answers, um, I only have the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the Valley of Elah. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. Take that if you want it, for there's nothing else here. So what he's saying is, Apparently, this is a place where we're keeping this, you know, these objects, you know, these, you know, this, this military piece that you is, you know, like a museum or something, an artifact. I got that sword you killed, the Goliath sword that you killed him and you chopped off his head with the sword. Remember that? I got that here. It's back with the ephod where we'd pray and ask God for guidance. We got it back there wrapped up in a, in a cloth. You want that? It's all I have. And David's like, uh, there's nothing like it. Give it to me. And so he goes out and he brings him again. And I brought this out last time. He brings him again. The sword, the sword. And he says, here you go, David. And all of a sudden, David has food and David has a weapon. And I, bring, I wanted to bring this back because I wanted to think about what was David feeling in that moment? I wonder if the sword of Goliath in his hand was a reminder to him, was a reminder to him that God has helped him before when the enemy was huge and when the odds were against him. I wonder if the sword of Goliath was a reminder to him that God's been faithful before, and though things are not good right now, I think he'll be there again. Just a, a, a token. Sometimes we have to look back. Sometimes we all have to look back at a spot where we saw God take care of us to remember and remind ourselves now that God is going to take care of us again. And David takes the sword. Now, David makes a decision we don't have time to get into for sake of time. He, he takes off to the Philistines. He leaves the country, goes to the Philistines and says, can I stay here? <laughs> like, really? 
They're like, well, and so that happens. People leave in exile from their country, and sometimes an enemy country will help someone just to spite the country they're coming from as a, as a, as a favor. So David's like, can I stay here? But it doesn't go well. Like, they're like, this is the town that the Goliath came from. You killed him. So they're not happy that David's there. And David gets out of there with his life. It's a funny story, and you ought to read it for yourself, by the way. We're not going to look at it today. But David has this crazy, insane idea, literally, to get out of there alive and barely does. He goes back to Israel. And we pick up the story in verse number, chapter 22, verse 1. So David left Gath, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And soon his brothers and all his other relatives joined him there. Now his whole family who once watched him get anointed and were overlooking him and then saw him be a hero, they're all coming to join him in this cave. Apparently there's a network of people who knows where David's at, not telling Saul because they love David, but they're letting his family know. Their family leaves Bethlehem and joins David hiding in this cave. Why? Why would his family leave their home and join David in the cave where he's hiding? Why? Probably because if David's life's in danger, their life's probably in danger. If Saul wants to get to David, one of the best ways is to get to David's family. So they're all taken off to join him for safety. But not just his family. Look at the next verse. Verse 2 says, Then others began coming. Like men who were in trouble or in debt or who were just discontented came until David was a captain of about 400 men. And this is kind of a mixed bag. People are coming to David saying, Hey, look, I'm in trouble too, so I'm with you. I'm in debt. I'm going to get out of there. I'm just unhappy with life. I'm with you. And David's got these 400 men plus their families, their women and children, and uh, his own family. And, and this is kind of a mixed bag. In one sense, he's not alone, and he has strength in numbers. But in the other sense, can 400 men really handle Saul's army if it comes down to that? And how hard is it to hide with 400 men running around with you? you know? So it just is becoming a whole thing. But David is not saying, get out of here, guys. He's like, okay. In fact, these are the men that David would end up pouring his life into who would become some of his mighty men someday. Well, as we continue the story, um, David says, David takes, later went to Mizpah in Moab, another country called Moab. He asked the king there, again, not, not a friendly nation, but he asked the king, please allow my father and mother to live here with you until I know what God's going to do for me. So David's parents stayed in Moab with the king during the entire time that David was a fugitive. So his parents are not living at home anymore. They're, they're going to stay. And it's, it's, it's sad, but at least they're alive while David's in exile. Meanwhile, back to Saul, we have one more big story to tell, then we'll look at a couple of verses from Psalms and we'll be done. But this big story is Saul, meanwhile, is all worked up. Saul is sulking. He's, you know, he can't find David. He has a feeling that people are helping David and not telling him things, and he's sulking and he's pouting. No one likes me. Everyone hates me. I think I'll eat some worms. You know, he's just upset. He's sulking around. And about that time, it says, then Doeg, remember Doeg? Doeg the Edomite, who was standing there with Saul's men, spoke up. Hey, when I was at Nob, he said, I saw the son of Jesse talking to the priest, Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech consulted the Lord for him. And then he gave him food and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. In other words, he helped David. And Saul is livid. King Saul immediately sent for Ahimelech and all his family who served as priest at Nob. And so I want you to think about this. Saul is so angry, you think he'd calm down in a few minutes. It takes a while to go to Nob, get the priest, and all bring all the priests back to the king and have them stand before him. 
But by the time they get there, Saul is still so furious that it says that when they arrived, Saul shouted at them, Listen to me, you sons of a high tub. What is it, my king? Ahimelech asked. Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me? Saul demanded. Why did you give him food and a sword? Why have you consulted God for him? Why have you encouraged him to kill me as he is trying to do this very day? Really? David's trying to kill you, Saul? I think you got the story flipped around. You're trying to kill him. He's trying to stay alive. But you're saying he's trying to kill you? Isn't that not accurate? But isn't that how it goes when we get off of our, when we get, when we get upset and worked up? We're sometimes bad about, about justifying some crazy choices and some crazy actions through really messed up logic. It's almost like Saul plays the what if game. Well, you know, if David is so beloved by the country, then he could be the next king. If he could be the next king, then he must want to be the next king. If he wants to be the next king, he must want me dead. If he must want me dead, he must want to kill me. So Saul has turned this all into a thing where David's after me, even though David's just trying to live and Saul's trying to kill him. But boy, I tell you, we can really warp things around in our heads sometimes when we're not healthy. And so poor, poor Ahimelech, he's petrified, right? Ahimelech says, but sir, but sir, is anyone among all of your servants as faithful as David, your son-in-law? He's your son-in-law, you know? He's like, why, he's the captain of your bodyguard. He's a highly honored member of your household. This was certainly not the first time that I've consulted God for him. May the king not accuse me and my family in this matter, for I knew nothing at all of any plot against you. Ahimelech's defending himself, saying, look, <laughs> we thought we were on good terms. We do this all the time for David because he's your loyal servant. Don't falsely accuse us. We're, we're loyal. That's a good answer, by the way. But do you think it makes a difference in this moment? The king is so crazy. He's foaming at the mouth still. You will surely die, Ahimelech, along with your entire family, he shouted. And he ordered his bodyguards, kill these priests of the Lord, for they are allies and conspirators with David. They knew he was running from me, but they didn't tell me. But Saul's men refused to kill the Lord's priests. Like Saul's men are like, listen, king, like you're the boss and we're kind of a terrified of you. But, and we'll do whatever you say normally, but I'm not going to go kill a bunch of priests, okay? That's just a step too far. I ain't doing it. But he wants them dead. And so the king said to Doeg, you do it. This is so tragic. So Doeg the Edomite turned on them and killed them that day, 85 priests in all, still wearing their priestly garments. Can you imagine that? Just, he just turns on these men who did nothing wrong other than doing their job and says, kill them. And this guy goes through and he kills every single one of those men, wipes out the entire order of priests. As tragic as this is, it's not quite over yet. Verse 19, then he went to Nob, Doeg went to Nob with some men with him, the town of the priests, and he killed the priests' families, men and women, children and babies, and all the cattle, donkeys, sheep, and goats. He kills every, wipes out the entire town because they had the audacity of accidentally helping someone they thought was doing the king's job. Not knowing, for nothing. Everyone's dead. The whole town's wiped out. No one's alive. It's a tragic outcome of an unhinged madman who has the power to do what he wants to do. 
Verse 20 says that only Abiathar, one of the sons of Ahimelech, escaped, and he fled to David. So one survivor, Abiathar. Can you imagine this poor kid? Like he's running for his life. He probably gets to David. He's full of adrenaline. When he finally settles down, can you imagine the PTSD and the trauma that was set in from watching his dad and mom and siblings and friends and everyone he knows all wiped out? And he's the only survivor? And he's probably thankful to be alive. Maybe he has some survivor's guilt. Who knows what's going on? And he comes to David and, and it says, um, when he told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord, David exclaimed, I knew it. When I saw Doeg the Edomite there that day, I knew he was sure to tell Saul. Now I have caused the death of all of your father's family. David's taking responsibility. Come on now, folks. David, you didn't be responsible for his family's death. Saul is. But David's like, yeah, but I shouldn't have been there. I shouldn't have lied, you know. But yeah, but you didn't kill him. That was Saul's doing. But see, Saul, look, we have a lot of Saul's and a lot of David's in the world. The Saul's of the world run around doing what they want to and justifying it like, well, I have a reason for it. It's okay. And I'm never, it's never my fault. It's never my fault because I have reasons. And there's the Davids of the world that they take everything personal. Like, oh, it's my fault that happened. I sh- if I'd have been more perfect, that bad thing wouldn't have happened. Right? There's, that, there's, those, there's both types of people. You know the crazy part is? Most of us can't recognize ourselves honestly. I've been doing this my whole life. And in all the years of pastoring, you know, I've noticed that, that the Saul's and the Davids of the world don't see it in themselves. That when, if you were to give and try to say what I'm saying right now about, about the, the tendency of either justifying our behavior no matter what or blaming ourselves for everything, and you try to explain that, the wrong people hear the message anyhow. Like, you know, if you start saying, hey, stop blaming yourself for everything that happens. It's not your fault. Like the Saul kind of people are like, yeah, it's true. I should stop blaming myself even more. So if you're like, no, listen, take responsibility for the things you do, the other folks are like, you're right. I should beat myself down even more. It's like, it's like we're so hard-pressed to hear and see ourselves in honest eyes. But David's over here blaming himself for what Saul did, which Saul justified. And then David does something remarkable. David says to Abiathar, Stay here with me. Don't be afraid. I will protect you with my own life for the same person wants to kill us both. David says, listen. I'm, he could have said, get out of here, kid. I got my own problems. My parents are coming around needing help. I'm running for my life. These other 400 crazy people in their family. David kept helping everyone else. How? Here's what I want to know. How does someone who's running for his life not just do what I would be tempted to do, you might be tempted to do, of saying, I can't help anyone. I'm sorry. You need to understand. I'm going through a lot right now, so back off. And yet David, in the middle of all of his trauma, somehow is still helping his family, helping all these other people who've come to him, still saying, Abiathar, I will protect you. How does he have the wherewithal to do that? David was not perfect, but he endured well. How? I believe the answer is simple. His faith and his confidence in God brought him patience, and brought him peace. So we've been trying to not only tell David's story as we've moved through this narrative. We've left David the shepherd a couple weeks ago. Now we're in David the fugitive. I've also tried to, to, to take some of the book of Psalms, which David wrote a lot of the songs in the book of Psalms, and attach one to each of the stories. We saw the shepherd psalm, Psalm 23 last time. Today I want us to, to look at Psalms 27 for just a little bit. 
because this is David's mindset. And if you read Psalms 27, you can understand how David, in the middle of his own terror and trials and, and being afraid, how David was able to hang in there and even help other people and continue on. Because here's his mindset. Psalms 27, let's just read a few of the verses only. Psalms 27, 1, David writes this. The Lord is my salvation and my light. My light and my salvation. So why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger. So why should I tremble? Now, here's the thing. David was afraid. David did tremble. Don't misread this and think that when you see the lyrics, you're like, oh, he's never afraid. I can't relate to David. I'm, I'm not worthy. I, I, I'm afraid. I'm not Superman like him. David's not saying he wasn't afraid. David was saying, when I get afraid and when I tremble, I, rem I step back and remember something. And I'm writing it down that the Lord is, is there. He's my light. He's my salvation. So yes, I'm afraid, but, but why should I be afraid? He's my fortress. He's protecting me. So yes, I'm trembling, but why should I tremble? In other words, when I get to a bad spot, instead of burying down deep into a dark place and finding no way out, the way out is to remember who God is and what God has done and rest in him. He continues in verse 2, he says, When evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Maybe not today, but they will. Give it time. Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I am attacked, I will remain confident. David, how? How can you remain confident in this circumstance? And I'm going to skip most of the chapter. You should read it for yourself. It's wonderful. But for sake of time, at the end of the chapter, David says this in verse 13. I am confident that I will see the Lord's goodness while I am here in the land of the living. In other words, not just someday when this life is over and I stand in God's presence, whatever that looks like. But while I am alive, while I'm breathing air, while I am still living, I'm confident that I'm going to see the Lord's goodness. It may not be tomorrow or next week or next year. I don't know when it's going to be. But at some point, the story's not over. The final chapter's not been written yet. And I'm confident that the day will come when the pages will turn. And the situation will turn. And I'm confident that I'm going to one day see the Lord's goodness. I don't know exactly when and how, but I believe it. I'm confident that it's going to happen in my life. Sometimes that's what we need in the middle of a dark season. That's sometimes what some of us need today. Whatever you're going through is to say, I don't know that this is going to get better real fast. I hope it does. But whatever happens next, I'm confident that God is there and is going to work out. And I'm going to see that. At some point, he's going to come through. See, David experienced some peace that's, that passes understanding. And I want to say something about this. I, don't, I want to put it on the screen. Peace does not come from perfect circumstances, but from a strong confidence in the faithfulness of God. And I know what we think. We, we, we think contrary to that. We think, no, peace will happen if I can change all the things externally that are making it hard for me. Then I'll have peace. If I can fix all those situations. But that's just not how it works. Jesus would say a thousand years later, Jesus would say to his disciples, in me you could have peace. In this world you're going to have tribulation. But you can still have peace in me. Because it's not about the external things. It's not about our circumstances. You know how we know that? You know that. So I know that. You know how we know that? 
Because we know people, all of us do. Maybe we are the people. We know people who have everything going their way. All the things seem to be lining up for them. And they still don't have any peace, do they? They're worried about what's going to happen next. How it's going to go wrong or something. And we all know people, folks, come on. We all know people who are going through the ringer. And you're thinking, how in the world are you still standing? And they are at peace. And you're like, how is that possible? It makes no sense to me. Because peace does not come from perfect circumstances. If you're looking for that, you'll never find it. You'll live your whole life looking for something you can't achieve. You'll be chasing an itch you can't scratch. It comes from a strong confidence that no matter what's happening around me, God is faithful. I can look to God and say, God, I believe you're there and I believe you care. And I don't understand how this is all unpacking in this messy world of people and things and situations, but I believe you're there and I believe that you care. And so David's going to close the chapter with one more verse. And in this last verse, he's going to make a statement to himself. But I want you to hear it as also being a statement to me and you. David closes by saying, wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. He's telling himself in the middle of the most, by the way, I don't know what you're going through, but I ain't, I ain't never gone through something like David just going through in today's story, okay? I don't want to compare, you know, but that's pretty drastic. But David is able to say, I believe, I'm confident, I'll see God's goodness, and I'm going to wait. I'm playing the long game. I'm in it for the long run. Big picture. I'm going to wait patiently for the Lord. I'll be brave, be courageous. Now, folks, I don't know who needs to hear that today, but whatever's going on, it's tossed your world upside down whether you're caught in the middle of a storm, so to speak, or in the middle of a battlefield. I want to just say that to you today. Wait patiently for the Lord. Hey, in the meantime, listen, be brave. Be courageous. Do what you're called to do. Step out like David and just say, What's the, what, what can I do? What can I do? How can I improve? How can I help? What can I serve? What can I, live your life. Be brave and courageous and wait, wait patiently. Maybe that's where you are. Wait patiently for the Lord. We'll continue our story in David next week. Let's pray.